The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for April 10th, 2022. Throughout Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Russia has been producing propaganda on state media and social media to garner support for the invasion from its people. Russian President Vladimir Putin even went so far as to sign into law a rule that criminalizes reporting that contradicts the Russian government's version of events. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from December 2019. In the episode, Alina Polyakova and Quinta Jurassic spoke with Peter Pomerantsev about his book entitled This Is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality. They discuss Russian propaganda after the fall of the Soviet Union and how the nature of propaganda has shifted as authoritarian governments move from silencing dissent to drowning dissent with disinformation. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast. December 19th, 2019. Today we're bringing you a new episode from our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation in the run-up to the 2020 election. This week, Alina Polyakova and I spoke with Peter Pomerantsev, a research fellow at the Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University and the author of This Is Not Propaganda, Adventures in the War Against Reality. The book explores how the nature of propaganda has shifted as authoritarian governments move from silencing dissent to drowning dissent out with squalls of disinformation. Pomerantsev argues that this transformation traces back to the cynicism and chaos of Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union, but now it's become all too familiar around the world. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Episode 487, Peter Pomerantsev on the War Against Reality. So, Peter, we really want to just get into this. You have been, you could say, the front lines of experiencing, uh, documenting, and writing about where this whole conversation about what we call disinformation really got started. And it all seems to go back to Russia at the end of the day. I think that's almost difficult to remember at this point in 2019 when we're having all these debates about regulation and uh, what the social media companies are doing in every t- a takedown every other week. But still, it all seems to just go back to Russia. This is the origin story of this. And you, of course, were living in Russia uh, for almost 10 years, starting in the early 2000s. And I just want to get you to tell us a little bit about, you know, how did we get started in all this? How did we get to a place where nothing seems true and everything is possible, which also happens to be the title of your first book? I think we have to go back even further than when I arrived in Russia, which was in a, in 2001. I think we have to go back actually to the end of the Cold War and when, you know, you know, uh, a kind of a Western 
idea that liberal democracy would, you know, was 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 the great glorious future of all mankind seemed to be, you know, an idea that, that most of us or enough of us adhered to. But during that time, something very unusual was happening in Russia. Um, really, by the early 1990s, you have this very interesting kind of political and cultural moment where uh, kind of all the ideas of enlightenment versions of the future, of rational ideas of the future, had disappeared. So obviously, belief in communism as a kind of an idea of universal progress. And then by 93, the experiment with democratic capitalism is so distorted and so painful and devastating for many. The idea that it would lead to kind of universal prosperity is, is no longer tenable for many people. And so Russia kind of arrives at this point where there are no versions of the future left. And this is happening like in the early 90s. And it's very interesting. You go back and watch Russian political debates of the early 1990s and actually Russian cinema of the early 1990s and Russian poetry and literature of the early 1990s. And it's remarkable how contemporary it feels. But in the political space, which I guess is what, is what you're most interested in, you have politicians like Vladimir Zhirinovsky who are no longer trying to kind of prove anything to anyone. They're not trying to argue any kind of coherent ideology or any coherent version of the future, or even trying to kind of prove to you that their lies are facts. They're kind of reveling in giving a big finger up to the language of factuality. And their speeches are these kind of like carnival of crazy meanness where you just watch it going, oh my God, did they just say that? Will they say the next thing? Which is, I think, is one of the great kind of excitements of watching of watching Trump's speeches and pure performance, you know, really no left or right anymore, just this kind of crazy uh, stream of consciousness performance, but with a kind of, you know, underlying, you know, them and us hatred seething through it. And nostalgia really is the dominant mode. No ideas of where Russia is going, no ideas of like, you know, a communist utopia, a city on the hill, just this kind of idea of making Russia great again, basically, or bringing Russia off its knees, which was the phrase that was used there. And it's very interesting that talking to sort of Russian sort of propagandists, sort of spin doctors from that time, how they were suddenly left in a world where there was no left and right anymore. And instead, they started kind of relying on, on what we now know as populism here, kind of trying to cobble together new ideas of the people for every election, which uh, was an ever-evolving process. But uh, that became the game. You have to create the people. And so Russia's going through all these sort of strange transitions and these strange phenomena really back in the early 1990s. And you get a kind of a, a class of political operatives and propagandists emerge who, you know, see beyond ideology and realize that ideology is just a plaything and start mixing their messages at will and really start building a politics just around feelings with no kind of coherent or stable uh, sort of set of policies that go with it. What you're saying reminds me of an article you wrote a little while ago about one of these so-called political technologists, uh, Vladimir Surkov, um, who is still part of the Russian government in various ways and has had multiple kind of great cardinal-style roles. But I think he really encapsulates this vision of Russia as and the entire Russian society as this sort of carnival, right, as a theater uh, that can be manipulated and controlled first and foremost through media, right? And this is still before, I think this is really important, this is still before the advent 
of social media in, in certainly in the West and certainly in Russia. So it's sort of this early understanding that the soup of capitalism mixed with intelligence officers who didn't know what to do with themselves and the emergence of marketing and PR in Russia all mixing together in the 1990s to produce this really, um, I think, very cynical vision of society and a very cynical vision of how people can be manipulated through the use of information. Is that basically uh, when you land in, in Russia as it's it's going through this transformation as this kind of vision is starting to emerge? Yeah, and I think what goes with that, which was so which is really different for, for, for Russians as well, was this idea, not that propagandists are trying to convince you of something, they're just actually trying to overload you with information and disinformation so that you don't know what's going on anymore and feel lost in a chaotic world full of dark conspiracies. Conspiracy theorizing becomes a way to kind of like make, not actually not make sense of the world, but make the world seem even stranger than it is. And so and that's reverse. Most propaganda is about, you know, getting people to believe in stuff. Here the aim was to get people to not believe in anything, but to kind of believe in an we have a sense that we live in a deeply cynical world with no values. And it's incredibly effective. That seems to be something that, that you know, resonates very deeply and we can analyze why that works so well. But also there's technical things going on. So if we're talking about the advent of social media in 2010, uh, Citizen Lab, which is a very important kind of research center that looks at the internet across the world, starts writing, we think we're seeing a new form of control of the internet on the RUNET, the Russian internet, where the aim is no longer to constrict the internet, but to flood it and shape it and kind of spread so much information that uh, that people can't cope with the volumes of it. And that's in 2010, which is kind of the early, what must be the first early experience of what we now think of as troll farms. So, Peter, we focused here on, on Russia and in the former Soviet Union. I'm curious what you think about how this model of thinking about the internet, but also thinking about sort of the information environment and the world, as you say, as a kind of cynical place without real ideology, kind of jumps the firewall. Um, and at what point it jumps the firewall, not only from Russia to the world as a whole, and then obviously now we're, we're thinking specifically about the United States as well. Well, in, in, in terms of, you know, R Russia's rather sort of very mean and cheeky uh, covert social media operations in America, it's hard to find a single date uh, where they start, simply because, you know, attribution is so hard online. But some researchers that I've, that I've spoken to see kind of the first evidence of, you know, Twitter handles, which in the end we found out were being run from the troll farm in St. Petersburg, already active in 2010, 2011. I think there's some evidence seeing kind of involvement with some of the kind of the fringe conspiracy bits of American society quite early. But then, of course, you know, the, the, the major operation is in the run up to the 2016 election. And probably previous to that, of course, the other huge spike in activity is after the um, invasion of Ukraine, um, which is when Russia kind of turbocharges its, its international activity. You know, my sense is the Russians were looking at the success of the Green Revolution and the success of Occupy and all these other kind of online movements that activists were using across the world and kind of twigged very early that, oh, my God, A, this could be a danger to us. But B, hey, can we use this? In my book, I interview a guy who's one of the biggest um, computer scientists and one of the biggest experts on kind of digital activism. And he used to give lectures in Russia 
And he remembers like these kind of weird guys sitting at the front of his hall in Russian university, taking copious notes as he talks about tactics for successful Twitter activism and movements. So, um, you know, I think they kind of twigged fairly early that this is a space they've got to get really involved with. So just to kind of put a big narrative on it, in the 1990s, uh, we see the emergence of kind of basic the domestic manipulation of information and society within Russia itself, which, of course, we forget that everything that's happening on the global stage, we tend to think it's all about us, right? It's all about the U.S. It's all about um, the elections in Germany or the or Brexit or elsewhere. But in fact, uh, in many ways, this is all about, um, we're talking about Russia, it's all about Russia, right? It's all about uh, testing these kinds of techniques, first and foremost, on the domestic population before setting them global at whatever point sometime we could say in after 2010 or so which of course coincides i think very interestingly with putin's return to office in 2012 where we start to see a much more yes assertive and aggressive foreign policy from russia more broadly and certainly uh there seems to be then a reinvestment or a reinvigoration of these tools of political warfare and information operations etc but you know i think to me the the question is you know, are the Russians actually good at this stuff? You said that it was so appealing you know, in the domestic context. And in the big question people keep asking themselves here in the U.S. and in Europe is, well, okay, so we have this troll farm. We know social media companies are taking down accounts that they're attributing to various Russian actors and proxies and agents. But are they really good at this or are we just really bad <laughs> at putting a stop to it? It depends what you mean by this. So uh, overall, Russia has a very rich tradition of propaganda. It's always been something that it's held in high regard. It's always something that it thinks is very important. And, you know, generally, if you talk to, you know, spin doctors in the West and, you know, I sometimes talk to Dominic Cummings, who ran the Brexit campaign and now is running the country. I mean, he's openly said, tells me everything I've ever learned. I learned from Lenin. Um, he's fascinated by Serkov, who you mentioned. So Russia has always been good at propaganda. If you're talking about sort of the IRA troll farm, I don't, I mean, we're all talking about it. And the internet is about getting attention. So, you know, these these uh, covert operations are so thinly covert that one always has the sense that part of them is to kind of send a message that, you know, we're back and we don't care. And we don't, we want to get caught to show how little we care about getting caught. Overall, I think Russia understands, really for a bunch of historical reasons we can look at, the importance that information plays in, in power these days, and how information can almost be an azat and a substitute for power, and how narrative dominance and information dominance is, it's not just a shield for being weak in other ways, it's, it's a source of power in itself. Um, you know, Russia plays this role of a kind of giant troll throughout the world. So, um, you know, and it, it's been doing that kind of as a piece of statecraft when, you know, actors like Donald Trump or ISIS managed to do that, um, you know, in, in, in their various ways as well. And that's something they twigged very early. I think if you look at the overall kind of information sphere, I mean, look at their activity in somewhere like Syria. That's been very well calculated for its information effects. I mean, Russia's managed to make itself feel like a superpower, even though we all know it's kind of like essentially economic weakness. So, you know, the troll farm itself is probably a little bit of a joke. No one in Russia takes it very seriously. Prigozhin is a bit of a joke. So, you know, if we're looking for sort of incredible science, 
and kind of, you know, the calculus of influence when we look at the troll farm. I don't think that's the right place to look at it, to, to, to look for that. But overall, no, Russia clearly has kind of twigged something about the information environment and is playing it very well. And while we're all thinking whether Putin is a tactician or a strategist, um, you know, he's, 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 he's having a laugh. So, um, you know, maybe, you know, in that sense, I think they're very good. And you, you mentioned the historical reasons behind why the Russian state has kind of become very good at this. Can you dig into that more? I'm curious what you think is animating it. Well, firstly, there's the longer tradition of sort of putting propaganda as a core bit of a core bit of statecraft, which is, you know, a little bit of that is already there in Tsarist times. But for the Soviets, it's absolutely massive. And disinformation, especially as a kind of a massive discipline and, and specialization. But if we're talking about something specifically with this bunch of, you know, Kremlin elites, again, it does start from a domestic story. So in the 1990s, the Kremlin, the government is weak as an institution and really to kind of make up for its weakness um, in a domestic situation dominated by regional governors and oligarchs, the Kremlin has to kind of like make itself, to put it very sort of crudely, feel big and strong. And it does that by kind of starting to dominate the information space, by putting itself everywhere. And even when Putin comes to power, the first thing that he sees it, he sees it before he sees control of the military or the energy, is the TV stations. He's understood that in a sort of a media-saturated world, you can do a lot just by controlling information and achieving kind of a narrative dominance. And, and they, you know, afterwards they go and start doing that internationally. There's a lovely quote that I have in my book uh, from Gleb Pavlovsky, who's another one of these kind of Kremlin spin doctors, where he sort of says, uh, Putin leaves the fingerprints of his information operations across the world. And that becomes, you know, a substitute for being an actual superpower. So it's something that comes actually, I think, from a sense of weakness. You know, you can't take on America, or, you know, in terms of in a, in a real military competition. So you find ways of projecting your power beyond that. But look, I'd also be very careful in limiting information to social media and TV. When Russia talks about information psychological warfare, they mean all types of non-kinetic activity, including corruption and, you know, diplomatic pressures, energy. So the whole kind of like the whole suite but also the way it uses kind of military operations it has a really strong informational effect. I mean, you know, in Syria, it's managed to really, you know, win rather spectacularly with very, very kind of in the grand scheme of things, kind of very low cost physical interventions. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report 
from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. Yeah, I wanted to follow up on that. Um, this 
this vision of there being no separation between information operations and then military activities in the Russian perspective, because I still think this is not well understood in the Western context. So a few weeks ago, Facebook announced another set of takedowns that they attribute to the Russians, in this case happening in Africa. And this seemed to be a huge information operation. There were three networks that uh, Facebook took down as part of that. But what really struck me um, is the surprise that a lot of people seem to have, I mean, people in the United States and also Europe, that at the same time as you have these paramilitary groups like Wagner operating in these African countries, this is also seems to be the, the same place where you have these information campaigns happening. And to my mind, this is exactly what I would expect, right? Because the military operations mutually benefit the information operations and vice versa, right? There's not really a separation between them, but clearly uh, the actual tools that are deployed in a specific country or against a specific country are calibrated to that specific country, right? We're not we didn't see, you know, Wagner show up in the United States, uh, but we saw the information operations, right? And we have these paramilitary groups show up in African countries, um, also in Syria. Potentially, um, some reporting suggests they've shown up in Venezuela. And we see the information operations as being a part of that kind of assault. And so I think that understanding that from the Russian perspective, this is all one in the same game is really important. But I wanted to go back to what you said about this link between information and power, uh, because I think that's really fascinating. It's often also missed. And what you talk about in your most recent book, uh, This Is Not Propaganda, is this notion of how we got from a place where we saw open information, free information as kind of the underpinning of democracy, uh, you know, more voices, more diversity, more plurality, great for democracy, which assume that to be the case. And of course, now uh, we see open information as a threat. So can you talk a little bit about how you think we got from this one vision to, to the next? So I think there's been different stages in, in that vision. And, and let's be clear about what sort of democracy we mean. We mean a kind of, again, a very kind of enlightenment vision of deliberative democracy, where there's an information space where we have a debate and the best ideas win, and the other side admits that, okay, we lost, and we have a plurality of views. You know, this kind of, you know, you know, the stuff that we were taught in school. I mean, it's a very specific version of democracy. I mean, we can think of very many other ones. But, but that kind of, you know, enlightenment ideal. Look, I, I think it's gone through several phases. I think, I think, you know, the first phase was seeing these kind of troll farms and cyber operations launched both domestically by, often by the sort of, fringe groups that, that had been alienated from the mainstream discourse for very good reason, like Nazis, but other kind of Islamist groups. That was a really big deal. ISIS had massive success in this online operations. And there was this sense that kids were being recruited online and ISIS was spreading its kind of ultra violence everywhere. And then the Russian one as well. So you have these kind of shocks where these kind of outsider groups suddenly start making huge inroads and, and, and you know, getting so much attention online. So I think that was the first one. I think that kind of shocked people into feeling that the internet is a dangerous place. Also with that kind of, you know, you know, various instances of bullying, of harassment, of, of death threats against politicians. You know, politicians felt this personally. That was a very big moment. So there was that, which was kind of very emotional reaction. And people started talking about this a lot. Uh, I think since then, there's been sort of more thinking. 
really about the consequences as well. And that's really come with not just the internet per se, but the internet, what are we on now, 2.0, 3.0? The social media internet, yeah? Right. <laughs> which, yeah, which, is, which has produced a very specific set of issues which undermine the idea of a kind of a common information space where we can talk to each other, which is clearly just in the structure of, you know, Facebook and other social media groups uh, leads to fragmentation, uh, leads to political strategies where you tell very different stories to very different audiences online instead of, you know, instead of trying to win a clear single ideological argument on TV, you're spreading lots and lots and lots of different messages. And most of us can't even see those messages. So we can't even have a, a proper communal debate about political decision making. So I think that's a specific issue that's come up with sort of the nature of social media, uh, which has become so, so predominant. And I think people who are, you know, even people who are quite dismissive, in my experience, of the first panic, shall we say, because they felt that we were maybe overreacting to the ISIS's and Russia's and far right of this world, admit that this is now a structural problem. Uh, I look at somebody like Full Fact in Britain, who are by far and away, you know, the most, you know, the cleverest fact checkers out there. In terms of really trying to make sense of the environment, they had a very good paper like a year ago saying, okay, look, the real problem here is fragmentation. And we're not going to have coherent societies anymore if everybody's just living in their little silo. And that is that that really, you know, brings into question sort of, you know, the whole kind of field that we live in. Exactly, because that marketplace of ideas, of course, uh, or whatever we call it, is being weaponized for the purposes of malign interference, whatever you want to call it. And that's not really a perfect word. Disinformation itself, I think, is an imperfect word in many ways. and doesn't capture the full extent of this transformation that we're going through in the communication space and the information environment. But I want to kind of take it back now to think about where we are and what do we do about it. You know, it seems to me, and you've written about this, that we've gone through the origins of this, kind of taking shape in the soup that is Russia in the 1990s, and you know, fast forward from then to now, we're in 2019, and we're having all of these debates about content, right? And what do we do about this nasty stuff that we see online? And it seems to me that this is really where a lot of the thinking has been going, is that you know, we need to take down um, specific content uh, that we don't want on the internet, because you know, let's be honest, we're talking on social media platforms, but if we look at uh, kind of the market share that all the companies have taken as a whole, we're really talking about the internet at large, right? And as you say, you know, we're in the space where there's this sort of instinct to see the open internet no longer as a positive, however we define that for democracy, but as a threat and a vulnerability. And the instinct is to clamp it down, right? We've got to shut this down. We've got to get control over it. We've got to do something about it. And so a lot of this has been happening in your in your homeland, in the UK, of course. But is this the right way to be thinking about it? This instinct, is that what we should follow, you know, to think about what do we do? Yeah, look, I mean, different countries have slightly different traditions for, you know, in one of a better word, uh, censorship. So America has obviously a much more libertarian one. I mean, in Britain, it wouldn't be crazy in the traditions of British uh, regulation, for example, to ban all paid political ads. That's that's something we do on TV already. Or, for example, to um, have fact checking for all official electoral ads. So, you know, that's that's something that's happened before it could happen again. So 
different countries have different traditions, but you know they're usually tied to something quite specific, like electoral law or public health. You know, they're not about information per se. You know, they're kind of regulations are very specific. You know, games that we have in society or, or risks to, to sort of genuine sort of and evidence-based public harm. But when we start talking about disinformation as a category in and of itself to regulate, then we are clearly in breach of Article 19 of the Declaration of Human Rights, which, you know, if we take that seriously, you know, it talks about freedom of expression, the right to receive information, the right to impart ideas. There's nothing there about lies or truth. There really isn't. So, you know, the freedom of expression argument is being kind of, frankly, I think, you know, misused by a lot of, shall we say, right-wing groups. But there is, it is true, nothing about disinformation in Article 19 of the Declaration of Human Rights. So I think we have to take a step back. I think we have to look at the internet as a whole, where look, content is pretty easy to create and pretty cheap to create on the internet. It's much more like a bar of people screaming at each other rather <laughs> than, you know, broadcast. Yeah. I would love to phone up a regulator and say, my in-law, mother or father, has just posted some idiocy that is neither fair nor balanced nor accurate on my Facebook feed. Take it down. You know, it's a ridiculous idea. So let's say the new British regulation wants to regulate user-generated content. I mean, that is a crazy idea. Think about like the billions of bits of information that are left online by people all the time. So I think we need to step back a second and look at the whole ecosystem as we search for a new metaphor. Or is it, or is it the whole architecture? I don't know. And I actually think weirdly, although it's counterintuitive, we, we face a new form of censorship today. And it's a censorship that doesn't allow us to see how the information environment around us is being shaped. So we don't know if something online is my in-law or a, you know, an influence operation covert one run from St. Petersburg or from Texas. Yeah. We don't know why algorithms show us one piece of content and not another. We don't know which bits of our own data are used to target us. We don't know who's behind that targeting. So actually, even though we have all this information around us, the, the important information, the understanding of how the whole ecosystem is created is, is censored. So in the old days, you know, we kind of knew who owned the newspaper, who owned the TV, and we could we could defend ourselves intellectually. We could use our media literacy skills. You can't use media literacy skills. You can't use your critical functions if the Internet is uninterpretable. So the regulation we need, or at least the public ethos we need to push this through, whether through regulation or just through a change in culture, is to make the Internet interpretable, which means not making pieces of content illegal, but certainly making deceptive campaigns. Yeah? Not individual anonymity, but campaigns. I think they should actually be regulated. I think we should have an understanding, public, some public oversight of algorithms. Look, at the moment, the White House is saying 2020 elections are going to be rigged because Google pushes liberal news up, conservative down. It sounds like a conspiracy theory, but you know what? We can't prove it either way. We don't know. Google is a black box. We can't have, you know, the place where our public debate happens in a black box. So, you know, actually, I still think we can use the principles of more information and freedom of expression. I just think we have to understand what they mean in this new environment. And look, this is exactly the sort of approach that the Chinas and the Russians will loathe. 
because they don't want their own population knowing how they game their own algorithms, how they collect data about people on the sly, and how they um, use troll armies to to sort of warp the online reality at home. Look, that won't be a solution to everything. Uh, you know, if people still want to be Nazis, they'll be Nazis, but at least it'll create information fields where we can compete, where fact checkers will at least know what to fact check that's relevant and who it's being targeted at. Where those of us who want to kind of, you know, create a new era of public service media where polarized groups are talking to each other, know which polarized groups are out there and are being targeted by, you know, actors, whether, you know, whether it's Russia or domestic actors, and try to build a new sense of dialogue. So at least allow us to compete. We might still lose, by the way. You know, the, the things that drive a different form of democracy, like a sort of a populist one that's based on in-out groups and, and hatred and, and not debate, that might still win. We might still lose, but at least we'd have a fighting chance. You know, it's it's funny you mentioned the, you know, the idea of calling up a regulator to demand a post be removed from your feed because I saw uh, Senator Ted Cruz the other day tweeted at the Twitter management basically saying he'd like to know why a tweet didn't receive more likes, um, which has a, a similar kind of, I'd like to speak to the manager energy. Um, and that, I mean, that also goes to your point about how you know, there's no way of why that knowing why that tweet didn't receive more likes. I assume it's not actually that Twitter is censoring him, but you know, we we can't be sure, right? You know, I'm not, I don't want to repeat cliches that America being polarized, but it's obviously true. And I do think this transparency principle is something that is is nonpartisan. It's, this should be something that all sides should be able to agree on. You know, we've seen over the past couple of weeks, Facebook has really been floundering in this question of you know to what extent they're going to allow politicians to lie in ads. And then recently Twitter kind of came in and pulled the rug out from under them and said, actually, we're not going to have any political ads on our platform at all. Um, so in your view, I'm curious how you think that fits into the structure you just laid out. It's not censorship. It is limiting information. But is it helpful insofar as it's limiting possibly false information or does it not still play into that idea you're putting forward of sort of increasing access to transparency listen i think both of those are red herrings you know this is this is not the real problem i think if, for example if we follow this transparency approach that i'm advocating then you know even if there was lies in political ads at least we would know where they were going who they were targeted at we could respond you know we would have the right to have enough information to respond to them. Look, I do think this is about different national traditions. So in a lot of countries, which are democracies as well, not America isn't the only democracy, we do have laws around electoral ads. You know, if you're doing an ad during an election, it, it should be fact-checked, for example. You know, and that's that's a law though. And that's not up to sort of like some doofus at Facebook or some doofus at Twitter to work this out for themselves. I mean, I'd much rather like to see clear regulation around this. You know, let's just have clear regulation around what are the rules for political ads? Now, the tradition in America is very different, where we're kind of okay with people lying in political ads. So maybe that's not going to happen. So therefore, let's have regulation around making the, you know, the whole space transparent so we could chase down the lies and respond to them. So I think this, this question of transparency is a really critical one, because it's a nice thing to say, right, we can all agree more transparency is great, but it's a very difficult thing to do in practice from the perspective of the company, certainly I think the perspective of governments to know what the transparency means, what kind of information should governments have, what kind of information do they actually need? I mean, there's a huge trust question 
about how governments uh, also collect information about their citizens. And there's been a lot of loss of trust in that, certainly in the United States, but I think across democracies as well. And I think this is really the key question that we're grappling with. And it also signals how we are at the very beginning of trying to understand what to do, because we're still talking about founding principles. So before we even start talking about specific regulations and specific rules and laws that we should legislate in the United States or elsewhere, we need to actually go back to those core principles and use those as the basis for crafting um, some sort of regulatory framework with a vision of what we want the information environment to look like versus following this instinct of let's clamp down on this thing that we don't want to see and we don't want our kids to see on the internet. So I think the debate to my mind now, as you you see, Peter, is how do we move from uh, the red herrings, right, which is, I think, focusing on things like political ads and takedowns, et cetera, and kind of start to open that black box, right, and think about the, the broader question of how do we actually stop and identify manipulative, exploitative behavior that is meant to orchestrate and influence society in all the different ways that I think uh, you talked about at the very beginning of this podcast that the Russians started doing a long, long time ago before the digital age even came around, right? I think this is kind of the the core of the debate we're having now. And, and you know, and this is going to be, and as you know, this is a big debate, and I don't know what to what amount of detail you want to get into it now, because actually we're talking about different different bits of transparency, you know. We're talking about algorithmic transparency, which is one block. We're talking about you know, transparency of political campaigns. So, you know, if I see one ad from Donald Trump, I get to see all the other ads that Donald Trump is giving to other people as well. Um, we're talking about transparency of knowing how our own data is being used uh, to target stuff at us. So if I see an ad online or I see any piece of content online, I know why they're sending it to me, you know, so I can have a kind of feedback mechanism. But you know what? The guiding principle is actually an old one, which is the right of the citizen, the right of the person online to understand the information environment around them and to empower them as much as possible, not the government. That would obviously be the wrong way to go. So if we're constantly coming back to the right of the person online, then, you know, you'll get into issues. What about, you know, the right of the next person online? These are old and wonderful debates to have. But as long as we start with that, then I think we're in a very, very kind of healthy place as a guiding principle. But you're right, well, we're talking about different sections and especially something like the public oversight of algorithms. I mean, there's lots of ideas that I've seen about kind of social media councils and how do you create public bodies rather than government bodies, which would have, you know, not carte blanche access to all sort of the, the, the data of a company, but some, you know, some anonymized data that would allow to see how kind of algorithms are working and whether, for example, they're, you know, whether they're, favoring extremist content i mean it would get quite technical pretty hard pretty soon um and you're right we do live in a society of low trust and one of the great challenges is going to to have public bodies that will be trusted as arbiters so that you know when donald trump goes hey google you're pushing conservative news down liberal up there's a public body that says no we've actually looked at the algorithms and uh, no they're not doing that you're quite right it's, it is still going to be a challenge but you know we can't solve everything just by one magic stroke we do have a degradation of trust in institutions but we can think about how how you know that trust can be returned or maintained um, that's almost kind of a, you know the next story to do 
Yeah, so I'll, I'll actually, let's end with that as the final question. How do we end up in a position where that trust is returned and maintained? And how how long do you think the time horizon is here? Is this, you know, five years, 10, longer? It's, it's, it's a really good question. I mean, why was there more trust, let's say, during during other periods, during the Cold War and stuff? I think, you know, I think trust is usually generated when people feel they're involved in a common endeavor. So if any of you have been at these god-awful sort of corporate weekends, you know, they'll, you know, where they're meant to build trust among strangers in the corporation, they'll start, you know, they'll give you exercises to do together. That's why trust is very high during wartime. You know, we depend on each other and so trust is necessary. I think during the Cold War, bits of trust were very high because, you know, there was the sense that we're in a common endeavor together and that we need each other. So I wonder whether democratic institutions, and we have to look at the most vulnerable ones at the moment. So maybe in Europe, you know, the justice system is under attack. In America, it, it could well be kind of various government agencies, I don't know, environmental agency, whatever. They need to think about very carefully if, if, if they're losing trust and if acts are trying to sort of degrade trust in them, how do they, you know, prove their usefulness to people? I think, like, I largely think about the media because I'm some sort of lapsed journalist uh, or a, a lapsed media worker, media rabotnik of some sort. Look, the media got very, very, you know, self-congratulatory that we were the fourth estate, you know, that we represented the people. But were we really? Were we doing very much for the people? Or were we just kind of like giving them the truth? Did we lose our contact? Did we stop being useful? Did we stop proving our worth? That it was so easy for a Donald Trump or many other actors to come in and start calling us fake news and Lugenpresse. How come there was that gap that they could operate in? So, you know, I think when we talk about the media, I think what we have to do is prove to people again that we are actually doing something that's useful for them. I think, you know, trust in media goes up when they do a story like, you know, Flint, Michigan. Uh, and, you know, you know, campaign and help people deal with with injustices and inequalities. So I, I think that's something that we have to think about a lot. And at the moment, I'd almost want to do kind of an audit of the great institutions of liberal democracy and see what are the levels of trust in them, what role disinformation campaigns are playing in eroding that trust, and what are the strategies to, to, to make up for that. I mean, it's something that has to be thought about strategically. It's doable, you know. But it has to be done. You know, I think a lot of media, for example, are so caught up in just feeding the ad tech system and just making sure they're kind of ginning up their supporters into as much of a fury as possible. They're not really thinking about how to gain trust from the other side. Um, in Britain, at least we have the BBC whose job it is to think about that. But even they think about it in a very, very superficial way. You've been listening to the seventh episode of Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's new mini-series on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Peter Pomerantsev. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer was Jacob Schultz. And our producer is Jen Patya Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>